0: you open up to Acts chapter 1 this morning in your Bibles, I want us to wrestle with this question that I just told you about because we often never address it, or I don't think we ever think to address it because we assume it's given, and that is, what is Woodland Friends Church here for? follow <laughs> <laughs> sermon done <laughs> man why do I do all that studying wow. learn and spread the word <laughs> yep learn and spread the word I, there are because I was thinking about this there are I don't know I think 15 churches that I would go to in Kamii we do everything else in Cami, if not Lewis then. so what is what is Friends French church here for and and in my mind Churches, lowercase, are to be fellowship of Christians carrying out the Great Commission in their locale. Are we doing that? The Great Commission—we'll look at the text in Matthew later today—but can be summed up really in to go and make disciples of Jesus anywhere and everywhere we can. And that, I don't know about you, but that feels like a tall order. And before you say, well, we're in woodland, as in small, remote community is somehow the exception clause somewhere in the Scripture, and we get off the hook, Jesus told this Great Commission to predominantly 11 ragtag ex-fishermen, ex-tax collector, you know, just ex-sitters, still sinners, in ancient conquered Israel under a pagan Christian hating empire and they probably would have wished that they at least had 40 on a remote hill in a much more tolerant country like the USA if we take this great commission seriously we maybe begin to fill the weight and we maybe begin to ask what do I do where do I start I'm retired (laughs) and you know Okay, I, I can't wiggle out this being uh, can't wiggle out of this one being in a remote community like Woodland, but maybe I'll find some other excuse to not answer this great commission. Like I'm a pastor. <laughs> if we move past that, if we get over ourselves, where do we begin? How do we begin? So I invite you to stand in honor of hearing the Lord's word today in Acts chapter one. We're going to be reading the first eight verses. Acts chapter 1. Luke writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's pray. Father, uh, I come before you feeling inadequate to preach this because I struggle to live it out. Father, I come before you desperately in need of your spirit, and desperately needing to be reminded of Jesus paying it all. Father, you have saved us from our sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have given us the power and everything we need to accomplish anything and everything you call us to do. Help us to trust in that. Help us to live that out. And help us to not allow the enemy to accuse us any further because he has no right over us whenever you have purchased us. Father, I pray for my friends that we be receptive in hearing all the things you have for us today. Help us to take joy and hope in knowing that you can accomplish wonders through us by your spirit. And may all glory forever go to you. Say what it is you desire. Have your way. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Put your mind in the disciples' minds if you can. It was a strange three years. It was three years that was wrought with all the weird seasons of life but sprinkled with the slow realization that this man, Jesus, whom they were following, was more than just a man. A man who did miracles, a rural rabbi who taught with more authority than the most educated of Jewish authorities. A man who had the charisma, the character, and the power, and nature, in that when he simply said, come follow me, men were willing to give up everything. Jobs, families, their homes, and basically just follow him. We don't know the conversations and the separations these men faced. We're led into the fact that a man like Peter either had a wife or has a wife because he had a mother-in-law who, what did his wife think about his travels if she was still around? Who picked up the business that anybody For the disciples who were fishermen and suddenly after three years of following Jesus a new season comes suddenly the man that you followed and listened to and witnessed miracles from and witnessed what daily spirit empowered life looks like well he didn't die or he did die but eventually the disciples accept that he's not dead and gone but he resurrected and they're going into a new season See, there's a history that Luke is working with. He begins in in Acts 1.1 in the first book of Theophilus. And Theophilus means lover of God. And there is this debate. Is Luke writing to a man named Theophilus? Or since Theophilus means lover of God, is Luke using a symbol to refer to all lovers of God? And I have a long footnote about it in the study guide. If you're interested for our purposes today, we have no need to cover that debate. But in any case, the the first book, in his gospel account, Luke says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs." appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. We are picking up a story. We're not starting it. See, it's evident in Luke's first words here. Back in January of 2016, I started a series in the book of Mark. That was 16 chapters compared to Luke's 24 chapters in his gospel account. Nevertheless, Mark laid for us a groundwork of the gospel account, and then we spent four messages most recently in Luke's gospel to kind of give us a precursor and taste to the book we're diving into. And I would invite you, if you want to dive in deep, I encourage you to be reading in your spare time the gospel of Luke. But it's important to know to note <coughs> that Luke believes he is picking up a story. He's not starting a new one. A very important word, if you highlight, circle, underline, whatever you do, If you look at that phrase, that word, Luke says in the first account, he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Began. One commentator says, as the gospel tells us what Jesus began to do and teach, so Acts tells us what he continued to do and teach by his spirit in the apostles after his ascension. See, this is the reason for our little overarching title I have in mind for our entire term, the entire time, I should say, in the book of Acts. It's Jesus' first church continues. (laughs) I make mention in the study guide, there seems to be this debate that sometimes teachers and commentators and pastors have because we don't have anything other to do with the debate. And that is, when did the church begin? Was it at the resurrection, the ascension, at Pentecost? I think it began the day Jesus began calling his disciples. What is happening in Acts is that Jesus' first church is continuing. It looks a little bit different, but many churches look different in different seasons. Jesus was taken up. He's not around physically, but he's around spiritually. But Luke's making mention to his reader and eventually readers that there is a previous account, a necessary groundwork, a necessary message. And at the end of that message came the crucial reality and the event that defines the message. Luke, having written a prior account, gives a brief summary at the end of his gospel, and will in fact give that summary again in all of Acts 1. But he says he has dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, and then note this, until the day he was taken up. Jesus was taken up. He died, he resurrected, but then he was taken up again. It's interesting that Luke is the only author in the Bible to give us the story of the ascension. It is important To his theology, it's important because this means Jesus is in heaven, that he is ruling and reigning and he is exalted. In other words, if you read the Gospel of John, John records Jesus making all these self-deifying statements. Before Abraham was, I am And if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. And the record of Jesus ascending for Luke is in essence saying Jesus is God. He has ascended into heaven. He is God. Does that make sense? Peter knows this in his memorable sermon at Pentecost. He says, This Jesus God raised up, and all of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. See, this is good news, that Jesus is God. This is where the idea of mediator comes in. This Jesus who is at the right hand of God, is the same Jesus who walked among us, the same Jesus who healed and forgave sins, and verse 3, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. See, Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God, and he is the one who suffered and rose again the one who suffered. Paul would say that his suffering was a demonstration of his love. So while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That means we have a man who is God, who is on our side. That's the message, and that's the grounding that Luke is working from. We skipped a part in the latter portion of verse 2, because this Jesus, who was taken up and is exalted, had given commands through the holy spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen so again the grounding in the message is that we serve a man who is god we serve our savior who is also lord we serve a servant who has the authority to give commands through the holy spirit john chapter 20 says on the evening the day jesus resurrected we read Peace be with you, says Jesus, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And it is so that, that Luke is likely referring to the Great Commission that in the commands he's giving us the Holy Spirit. So the Father is sending us and then receive the Holy Spirit. Once you, the one thing I want you to really hear today, the Holy Spirit is necessary. That the disciples are commanded to wait. They have a grounding in the message. Namely, Jesus is who he says he is. He has God become man. He ascended back to God. He is Savior and servant who is Lord. He has accomplished redemption. And he sends us out. But we can only go out with the Holy Spirit. So that we are commanded to wait. Beginning in verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but ye will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Do you hear the cruciality of the Holy Spirit? Just as a crossless Christianity is no Christianity, so a spiritless faith and practice is vain. See, the disciples have seen the resurrection of Jesus. The disciples have been taught firsthand by the resurrected Jesus and then told to go and make disciples in every part of the world. But that's not all. Crucial, necessary, inescapable, mandatory is the fact that they need to wait. They need to wait for the Holy Spirit to immerse them. I was listening to a lecture a while back. It's a theology lecture. I'm sure that surprises you. And the teacher was bemoaning the fact that he had a dear friend in the Presbyterian Church who retired and after so many years of ministry, but then he came out as an atheist. We live in this weird world, don't we, that so many people have separated Christianity from its... Spiritual loyalty and commitment. Spiritual. You and I aren't supposed to be in a structured, rule-led, compartmentalized, alternative lifestyle. We were witnesses to the power of God. We're witnesses to the event of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We're witnesses to the authoritative teaching of God, and we're witnesses to a living and active spirit. And the Spirit is necessary. The Spirit is essential to our lives as a Christian. In fact, Paul would call the Spirit a seal of our salvation. Can you imagine the angst of the disciples? They've had a weird 40 days. (laughs) They went from cowards, our Lord is dead, to witnesses and believers, our Lord is alive, he's resurrected. And perhaps things might begin to be making sense that the cross is the power of God to save, as Paul had worded it, that the biggest letdown for the disciples, that faithful Passover weekend, is now the biggest and best news for the world, that the reality is for the Christian, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And this momentum has got to be building in their hearts, and they want to get the message out, but then the resurrected Lord says, wait, wait. We need the Spirit. I don't know if you know this, the Holy Spirit is kind of a debated, controversial figure in our faith at times. I was thinking about this, I didn't realize this, as we were singing, glorify thy name, and in your hymnals they have verses with arrows behind them, and those arrows mean, if you want to sing an abridged version, just skip the verses that don't have arrows. Did you notice where the arrow was missing? The third one. The first one was about Father, we love you. The second one is Son, Jesus, we love you. The third one was Spirit, <laughs> we love you. Now, I don't think they had any interpretation that we're supposed to read into that, but it was just interesting that that's the one that decided to take the, the um, song away. <clears throat> some Christians, I'm going to try to be very careful here, some Christians treat the Spirit like the crazy uncle that <laughs> We will have to love, but we don't interact with him too much. Other Christians treat him like the crazy uncle who happens to be their favorite uncle, so they can do crazy things with him. And I would merely state that some do crazy things and blame him for it, when he isn't the one to blame all the time for the crazy things. And I'm saying that, that this should offend everybody. Nobody's left out. I want us to see seven quick characteristics of who the Holy Spirit is. And since I'm not trying to reinvent the will in my preaching, I took out a book called The Forgotten God by Francis Camp, and I'm taking seven characteristics right out of the book, and I'm expounding on each point in my own language. First, the Holy Spirit is a person in the Trinity. He is not the force from Star Wars. He is not an indistinct or vague power or magic energy. He is a he, not an it, or a she. When Jesus describes the Holy Spirit in John 14, 16-17, listen to how Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. To Jesus, the Holy Spirit was and is a key coming to dwell in the believers, which means he has a relationship with believers. Thus, the Spirit is not a power or a force to be harnessed like wizards harnessing energy for magic. Rather, the Spirit is a person in a relationship with the believer. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is God. We believe In the Trinity, that that God is the Father, He's the Son, He's the Holy Spirit, none are better than the others. Later on in the book of Acts, specifically chapter 5, Peter asks Ananias, you know that story, Ananias and Sapphira, and he says, how could you lie to the Holy Spirit? And then later on he says, he not only lied to people, but to God. The Holy Spirit is God. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit, being God, is eternal and Holy. We just read in John fourteen sixteen that the helper will be with Jesus' disciples forever, which is why he's still with us today. This doesn't mean he comes and goes as he chooses, like a whimsical little fairy tale. We, we aren't filled with the Holy Spirit one day and then he's left us the next. Rather, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 13 that he is our seal of salvation. He is living in us, living as a dwelling and abiding and staying. I'm not saying that the Spirit doesn't fill us at certain times in certain ways, but He never leaves us. Also, Paul says in Ephesians 1.13 that He is holy. And this is very important. Because if the Spirit wasn't holy, how would we have Him as our seal of salvation? The Spirit is holy, so when God sees us, He sees holiness. Fourthly, The Holy Spirit has his own mind, and he prays for us. This goes back to the first point, that he isn't to be harnessed like energy or magic. Rather, the Spirit has his own mind. Later on in the book of Acts, in Acts 16, verses 6-7, through Paul and Luke and company are looking for a place to do ministry. And we see that the Spirit has a will of his own, and it happens to be contrary to Paul and company. It says, and they went through the region of Persia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mycenae, they intended to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. See, these are good endeavors, godly ideas. Let's go preach the gospel in places that need it. But The Spirit has a will of his own, and he's saying no. And it is part of his will to pray for us. Paul notes in Romans 8, 26-27, says likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings to thee for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Do you hear that? The Spirit has His own mind, and He knows us more than we know ourselves and He prays for us even when we don't know what to pray for. I've been there. Fifthly, the Holy Spirit has emotions. Isaiah 63.10 and Ephesians 4.30 says that the Holy Spirit can be grieved by sin. Luke said in Luke 10.21 that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. I think about the fruits of the Spirit. Among them is joy. Sixthly, the Holy Spirit has his own desires and will for each person. Now, I know this goes back to the fourth one. He has his own mind. But what we're talking about is that the Holy Spirit has his own desires and will for each person. That means what he wants for Kevin may not be what he wants for Dean. The Spirit is working in the believer for the kingdom. But the Holy Spirit, being God, knows what each believer ought to be doing. So we read in places like 1 Corinthians 12 that believers have spiritual gifts, and namely First Corinthians 12, 11 says, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Do You see the authority in the Holy Spirit in that. That could mean that perhaps the Spirit wants to impart a gift or a feeling differently to Dean, than to Kevin, than to Vince, than to Phil, than to everyone. He has his own desires and wills for each person. Lastly, seventhly, to reinforce what's already been said about the Holy Spirit being God, the Holy Spirit is omnipotent, all-powerful, He's omnipresent, present everywhere, and He's omniscient, He's all-knowing. Zechariah 4.6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts, as in there's a better option than might or power, it's called the Holy Spirit. David asked in his memorable 139th Psalm, Where can I run to escape your Spirit? The Holy Spirit is everywhere. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.10, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. He knows everything. This means that there is a common order, desire, and will, and plan being played out in the church universally by the power of the Spirit. And it is the Spirit that Jesus is commanding his disciples to wait for, and I think we see why. This would seem like a very valuable resource as we do the mission. They will be baptized and immersed in in this Holy Spirit, and they are to wait for him because there is a purpose for the Spirit here and now. We finish verse 6. So when they had come together, Luke's talking about the ascension here, Jesus is about to be taken up. We'll cover that more fully next time. But it says, They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The disciples, even after Jesus didn't say a thing to the Romans, didn't do one iota in the vein of restoring Israel to a kingdom before he died or after he resurrected, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And we talked about this on Palm Sunday, that the disciples are fixated on a restored kingdom of Israel, but we actually do the same thing. It just may not be Israel. Or maybe it is. But many of us are praying for a revival in the states. Lord, well at this time, will everyone just come to their senses and realizing they're calling good evil and evil good? Lord, will you put in or will you keep in the right president for our nation? Lord, will you now heal this brother or sister completely? Will you now turn this situation around? And whatever the situation, whatever the desire we have, God has two things to say, I believe, we can take from this passage. A, no matter what can of worms is open, God is still God and he's still in control. And B, we have what should be our primary preoccupation. So A, no matter what can of worms is open, God is still God and in control. The can of worms that the disciples is preoccupied with is Israel. They want it restored and he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You know what that means? God's got to figure it out, guys. <laughs> He's not hiding anything from you here that you need right now. That should give us great confidence. No matter what your situation is, God knows the times and seasons. The Father has it all fixed by his own authority. He knows the end of the United States. He knows the end of the world. And he knows the end of your problem no matter how big or small he does does definitely care for you. And you might be asking or saying, but it's so hard to wait. What do I do in the interim? We have what should be our primary preoccupation or occupation, whatever you want to put. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Did you hear? Any answer to the disciples' question. Is this when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? I didn't hear an answer. I didn't hear a no. I didn't hear a later. I didn't hear a here's when. I heard a you don't need to know what the Lord has in store. He's in charge for a response. And then he repeats himself. And I believe what he says here at his ascension is a different occasion than what he said at the Great Commission. I believe those are two separate events. The Great Commission takes place on a hill during worship, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20 tells us. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I believe here, a second occasion, he's repeating himself, and he fleshes out, I am with you always. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of earth." This is why they are to wait. This is why the Spirit is necessary. The necessity of the Holy Spirit in our lives is due to the purpose for the Holy Spirit in our lives. Friends, we're reading about the continuation of Jesus' first church, and thankfully, when the best congregation on planet Earth—I mean, Jesus' first church—had Pastor Jesus, you can't get be any better pastor than Pastor Jesus. And thankfully, when Jesus' first church had kind of a curveball thrown at them—that is, Pastor Jesus had to depart in the flesh—he gave his church his spirit, and it's still his church. Jesus' first church is still continuing, capital C. And this is paramount to understand the book of Acts. If you don't understand this, you don't understand Acts. Because many people flip through the book of Acts and say over and over, how do we get back to that? What's the trick? I wish our churches looked like more like the churches in Acts. And I'm not saying that that's not a good endeavor. Nor am I saying that we certainly couldn't do with some of the principles we see laid out in Acts that could and should be practiced in our churches but aren't. However, the biggest the primary, the most significant, the most important. As in everything else, to me, becomes eh, maybe we should adopt that practice again. But this, the necessity of the Spirit in our church, is where it's at. Let me say it this way. If I was given three things from the book of Acts to implement to our church today, I would say I only need one. One's important enough for me. I want the Spirit. And friends, we have the Spirit this is how eleven ragtag disciples in Rome occupied state of Israel on its way out the door. Started spreading the gospel across the world at their time, the Spirit. So what does the Great Commission look like in, in woodland? How can we accomplish making disciples here and everywhere? Do we just wait in the church for the Holy Spirit to fall on us like tongues of fire? Do we just suggest communal living and have everyone voluntarily bring their possessions for the good of the church? Do we? Do we pray for an Islamic terrorist to come to Idaho and convert to Christianity and preach with the zealousness of Paul? Or do we realize that the Spirit is in charge and it's not about what the disciples did in that first generation of Christians? It's about the power found in the Spirit. It's about the wisdom of the Spirit, knowing what any community needs at any time in history, and thus empowering the believers of those communities to do what is needed. Does that make sense? Friends, I invite you to be about the business of the Great Commission. It may be daunting. It means discipling people. It means answering the call of what Christ has called us to. And I invite you to take hope. And most of all, to take in the immersion of the Holy Spirit. Because it is His church. In the correct way, in the necessary way, in the most effective way, in the only way, we can accomplish the Great Commission with all the idiosyncrasies that Woodland has, is that we do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who is a person in the Trinity, who is God, who is eternal and holy, who has his own mind and prays for us, who has emotions and his own desires and will when it comes to what each and every believer is doing, and lastly, hear me in this church, the Holy Spirit is the leader of the church, and it is key, because he is all-powerful, He is in all places at all times and He is all knowing. Do you think a God like that in charge of the church will bail the church? No. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let me be the first to admit that one of the things I just did was try to lay out systematically what the Spirit is. And we like to take theology and we like to take ideas and put them in boxes so we can understand them. Here's one thing I learned is that your spirit thinks outside the box. And sometimes we're so quick to look at whether it be other churches that are successfully in a worldly sense, whether it be the Bible and what we saw your church doing. We look for things, we look for programs, we look for anything and everything to try to accomplish the mission, and we're looking up and over the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we invite you to fill us today, fresh and new. We invite you to help us to be obedient to each and everything you call us to do. Help us to not grieve you into sin by our rejection or our ignorance of what you would call us to do, because you call us to do scary things at times. For many of us, it's scary enough to talk to a person about Jesus Help us to take hope in your spirit because we know that if you're calling us to do something, you're not leading us to somewhere where it's uncharted by you. You're not tagging us in and telling us to go into an uncharted territory, but you've already been in that uncharted territory preparing the way we would just be obedient. So help us, Holy Spirit, to carry out what you've laid on us as disciples to do up here. And help us to find complete confidence and hope in you. To know that When and if you are in charge of this church, it will not fail. It may not be successful in the worldly sense, but we're looking to please you and not anybody else. Father, we love you. We thank you. I pray that each and every one of us would depart with your spirit. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.